0: Okay, we're, we're staying the text. It's chapter 27 of Acts, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. There's 44 verses. I thought we'd perhaps just read a section of it and then pick out the main ideas as we go along. April 15th, 1912, 2:20 a.m. in the morning, and the stern of the White Star liner, the Titanic, swung slowly upwards towards the stars. Her lights went out, flickered back on again, and then went out for good. Only one kerosene lamp flickered high in the aftermast. As the stern reached higher, a steady roar thundered across the water as every moving thing on board broke loose. There was never a mixture like it. 15,000 bottles of ale and stout huge anchor chains, each link weighing 175 pounds, 30 cases of golf clubs, 30,000 fresh eggs, potted palms, five grand pianos, a cask of china from Tiffany's, and most valuable of all, 1,500 passengers. The great and the unknown tumbled together in a writhing heap to the bow, as it eased deeper and the stern rose higher. The Titanic was now absolutely vertical, her three dripping propellers glistening in the darkness, and for nearly two minutes it stood there, poised, until the noise finally stopped. And then slowly she slid, her stern uttering an audible gulp, as she disappeared from view. I don't think there's anything more terrifying than a wreck, whether it's a car wreck, or a plane crash, or a shipwreck. Perhaps the shipwreck is the most terrifying of all because of the prolonged agony that the passengers and the crew endure. Here in Acts chapter 27, we have The best account from the ancient world of a shipwreck It's a -a one-of-a-kind thing It's one of the best told stories in ancient history It's also the product of an eyewitness Luke, who writes it, was there He's accurate in terms of the route the ship took Ancient navigating skills, which he refers to Even the details of the ship's physical construction and the way in which the sailors tried to cope with the storm. The first part of the chapter, as we saw, begins by giving us an eyewitness account of the journey they took. Paul, the Apostle, is a Roman citizen and he has appealed to Caesar And because of that status, an unusual status in the ancient world, he is permitted to have with him two of his own companions, Luke and Aristarchus. Luke honors the centurion who is in charge of this little expedition by giving him his name, Julius. Julius would distinguish himself by his courtesy towards Paul and decisive action during the storm at sea. Julius booked a passage for himself, for his prisoners, for his soldiers on a small privately owned ship that was to take the coast up the west side of Assyria, the south side of Asia Minor, now Turkey turning north into the Aegean Sea and then going into port at a point where the Aegean meets the Mediterranean they would transfer to a larger ship On their first day at sea, things went well. They covered about 70 nautical miles, setting down in Sidon in Phoenicia. At Sidon, Paul is allowed to go ashore. He's allowed to visit friends there. Julius, in in his kindness, shows great trust in the Apostle as he lets him go ashore. But from that point, from that point, the trip degenerates. Things begin to go badly wrong. First of all, as they set out, they discover the winds are against them. They have to divert north around Cyprus and head towards the Turkish coast. There they transfer onto a heavier freighter. But once again, they only reach the next port with great difficulty. They're forced to sail southwards under the shelter of Crete and they land in this little town of Fair Haven. It was a bit of a dump, really, but the local council had renamed it Fairhaven in hopes that seeing it on the map, people would come in there to visit, that it would kind of attract travellers in. But at least Fairhaven offered a secure harbour and shelter from the Gales. The shipowner, probably thinking of the bottom line and the profit margin, favoured pushing on as quickly as possible, but Paul... Paul, who was no sailor, was nonetheless a seasoned traveler, and he warned against going. One of the things we know about Paul, that by this stage, we know from an earlier letter he wrote, he had already experienced in his life three shipwrecks. So he may not have been a seasoned sailor, but he did have some experience of heavy weather. And so he warns. He warns about the risk. It wasn't that Paul was risk-averse. But he does warn them that they shouldn't set out, because here was a risk that was a risk too far. The sailors, I think, wanted to go with Paul, but the owner, the pilot, and the owner wanted to head out, and so they did. And it was as they were heading out that all hell was let loose. A northeaster hit them, threatened to drag them the length of the Mediterranean, They had to pass ropes underneath the ship's hull to try and keep it together. They jettisoned the cargo. For 14 days they labored without food or without the light of the sun or even the stars by night against what increasingly seemed to be impossible odds. 276 people gave up hope of ever seeing harbor again. Now all of that takes a lot of time in the story. That's why I didn't have it read to you, because every detail is, is, is told. And the very fact that so much time is taken telling you the story tells you how important the story was. And as you read the story, I have to tell you this. There is no divine intervention. There is no miracle of deliverance. There are no angelic guardians to guide them safely to the harbour. And when they are saved in the end, it's only after two weeks of agonizing struggle against the elements and ultimately a scramble onto the shore, clutching onto any piece of wood they could find to give them ballast as they try to swim to the shore. And I tell you that because that's the way things usually happen in real life. And that's the way they happened there. what I want to do in having got them ashore for a second I want to go back to the point where things are at their very worst in the middle of the storm when salvation when rescue when deliverance seems most unrealistic when the men are exhausted having not eaten for nearly two weeks the storm is unrelenting The spirit of hopelessness is gripping the hearts of the sailors and the passengers alike at the very point where everybody is struggling to come to terms with what seemed inevitable death. It's then that Paul speaks. Look at verse 21. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no more loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there has stood before me an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And we must run aground on some island. So there's Paul's words. You see the contrast. Men are in terrible danger. The sailors who are well experienced in this kind of thing are so frightened they've given up hope of being saved. And here's this diminutive Jewish preacher who knows little of storms and ships in terms of their technical aspects, but he's been through this whole process before, telling them to keep up their courage and not to be afraid. And by referring to this word of warning earlier, Paul is not saying to these people, I told you so. Uh, What he's saying to them, rather, is this if I was right back then when I was only talking to you on the basis of my experience and warning you against the danger because I've been in this kind of situation before, will you please listen to me when I tell you this? And then he tells them the really difficult thing that they have to listen to that God has sent an angel to tell them that that the ship would be lost but the people would be saved. And the key to their salvation from a watery, watery death is simple. It is that God, that Paul rather, belongs to the God who rules the storm and that God had a task for Paul to do in Rome and as a token of his favor, God had given Paul the lives of those who are traveling with him. Now I think Paul's words here provide us with several principles that we can apply to our own lives, because eventually we all find ourselves, if not in a literal storm, certainly in a metaphorical storm, storms that come suddenly into our lives, that invade our space, that come with terrible ferocity. They can come with a phone call in the middle of the night, with a diagnosis from the doctor. One day it's a fine day, and the next day you experience real pain, you land in hospital, The diagnosis is grim and a storm has descended upon your life. And the question is, how are we going to go through those storms? Let's listen to Paul. Because Paul spells out to these people that he is conscious, first of all, of God's presence. Look at verse 23. The God whose I am stood beside me on the deck of a sinking ship in a raging storm, Paul was anchored in God's presence. Now, I remind you that, of course, Paul is not your ordinary Christian person. He's not a a, a pastor or a a minister or an evangelist or a bishop or any of those things. He's an apostle. He's a called apostle. He has revelations of God like this that you and I don't get, frankly, frankly you don't get them. Don't expect them. You won't get them. Paul gets them because he's going to give them to us. He gets them for our, for our encouragement. That's why they're in the Bible and mine aren't and yours aren't ever going to be in the Bible. So Paul's are in the Bible because they're for us. And what Paul discovers by this revelation of God is this. That what Jesus said when he was leaving his disciples is in fact true, whether you can see it or not. When Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth, he meant it. And what Paul sees by a revelation from God is this, that there on this deck of this heaving ship in the middle of the storm, there is God standing beside him. If he hadn't seen it in the vision, it would still have been true. But he sees it in the vision so that he can tell us that what Jesus said is true. In the middle of the storm, there is God with him. How does God assure you and I of this today? He assures you and I of this today by speaking the way I'm speaking to you now, from his word. You have his word for it. Do you believe God or do you not? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He, God, walks everywhere, incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake, still more, to remain awake. The presence of God. Now, sometimes it's supernatural. Mostly, it is in the way in which He quietens our heart. It's in the way in which he gives us the assurance in small ways, sometimes through apparently insignificant individuals, that he is there in the midst of your crisis. God's presence. The second thing Paul is aware of is God's ownership. Look at how he describes God again. God to whom I belong and whom I worship. To whom I belong. He senses, you see, that he is God's he belongs to God he is God's possession and uh, a believer is God's possession in what way he is God's possession first of all by creation God made me therefore he owns me and we are God's possession by redemption he bought me he paid a price for me. There was an expenditure in the heart of God giving his only son, sacrificing his only son for me. That expenditure on God's part as he demonstrates his love for me in taking my flesh, putting my skin on, coming into my world, being as vulnerable to death and taunts and disappointment as I am, and then dying in my place. God owns me. In the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, which, by the way, happy birthday, Heidelberg Catechism. It was 450 years old yesterday. So uh, we should have had a party for the Heidelberg Catechism. It starts with this statement I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head and he's been challenged with me recently but not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. I belong body and soul. Paul realized that. The God whose I am. There was one minister I heard about who, whenever he was tempted, would resist the devil by saying, Lord, do you know they are attacking your property? You deal with it. That's a good way of thinking, isn't it? Well, here was Paul then. At one sense, at one level, he's a special case, but Only in a particular instance of the general truth that undergirds all of God's people. Here is a God before, above, beyond nature and we are His. We are His property. We have been bought by the blood of His dear Son. And all the forces of nature combined cannot rob God of what is His. God's ownership. The third thing that Paul learned... Again, in verse 23 is of God's will. God's will. You notice he talks there about the God whom I serve. This divine must, as it were, governs Paul's life because God had an invincible plan. And God had told Paul what his plan for him was. God had revealed it to Paul some time before and said to Paul, I want you to bear witness in Rome. That's my plan. So here's the, here's the issue. Here's a little bit of thinking for you. God had told him he was to bear witness in Rome. One. Two. He had not gotten to Rome yet. It doesn't take an Einstein to figure out the implication of those two facts. If God had told him that he was going to serve him in Rome bearing witness there, and if he had not gotten to Rome yet then the storm battering the ship on which he was sailing was not going to take his life. God would preserve him to accomplish the revealed will that he had expressed for Paul's life. Oliver Cromwell used to have a saying, every man is immortal until his work is done. That goes for women as well, by the way. It's a genetic, generic term there. Not a genetic, generic term. Just to see if you're awake out there every man is immortal until his work is done I remember thinking that on one occasion that we, I was taking the, the, the plane from Scotland to Boston on my way to Philadelphia to spend some time at Westminster Seminary some years ago and I was traveling with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson at that time was teaching systematic theology at Westminster and I was going to be staying with him and uh, we, uh, we set out from uh, we got onto the plane, we got to the runway, the engine started, we were, were hurtling down the runway when there was this almighty bang that just shook the whole plane. They killed the engines, they pulled off to the side, and we all got off the plane. While we were off, there was there was Sinclair Ferguson, myself, and then we met another guy who was a professor of uh, theology at Stirling University, and he was on his way to Fuller University out on the west coast and uh, it was Singler Ferguson I think who said well there's three of us here two professors of theology and a pastor one of us must still have work to do so it must be going to be okay so they they did the plane by the way they went and they came back two hours later they came over the the thing and they said uh, we've we've investigated the plane we can't find anything wrong with it so we're just going to re-embark you (laughs) Onto the plane, I mean, I have to tell you that, you know, those are the moments when you think, okay, is there another mode of transport across the Atlantic available at this moment? Uh, but anyway, so they, they were, there you go. But the point is the point that Paul is making here is you see, God has revealed his will. And in this situation where the storm is is assaulting them, as it were, this storm can't do anything to interfere with God's revealed will. No assassination attempt, which had been tried. No imprisonment. He'd been in prison for two years. No mob violence. He'd been exposed to mob violence. No storm at sea and no shipwreck could impede the will of God. God's unstoppable plan. And Paul's calm ability to encourage others sprang from his faith in God. I have faith in God, he said. He believed God's word. That's what, that's what it comes down to. Do you believe God? Do you believe him? Do you believe what he says? You know, sometimes a little child comes to you and they tell you a little story and you don't believe them. and You're right not to believe them. My question is, do you believe God? Now you and I don't get special revelations of the will of God like Paul did Paul's are in the Bible so that we learn that we can trust God even though we don't have them God has not been and most likely will never reveal to us a specific length of service that we will give the specific place of service that we will spend our lives God will preserve us to do it however whether we realize it or not he is in charge he has a will for your life and mine and we've got to trust that we've got to trust that the third thing that a fourth thing rather that emerges from the story is God's sovereignty look go to verse 25 I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me see Paul knew God he knew God was the God of all circumstances he knew God was a God who kept his promises Therefore, he knew that God was a God he could trust for all of life's details. Paul believed God. And here we see where the storm fits into the bigger picture of the book of Acts. Paul's visit to Rome was of such spiritual significance in the history of redemption, not just in his personal life but for all of our lives, that the very fact that this storm occurs raises a significantly big question. Because when eventually Paul gets to Rome in the next chapter, which, by the way, is the last chapter, and you can just wonder what happens after that, because I'm not telling you yet. But when eventually he gets to Rome, what does he do? He preaches about the kingly rule of God, the kingdom of God. Now get this. What is the relationship between the kingly rule of God on the one hand and a storm that nearly drowns the apostle silences his preaching and ends his pioneer evangelism once and for all. You see, Paul lived in the same world that you and I inhabit. In his experience of life like ours, life is full of contingencies, of decisions large and small, of circumstances beyond our control and from our perspective unpredictable outcomes. He lived in a world that was contingent like yours is and mine. Everything that could go wrong had gone wrong for Paul. He'd been arrested. He'd been two years in jail. There had been mob violence. There was assassination plots. Now he's on the boat, and there's a storm, and there's going to be a shipwreck. And you think to yourself, like, have you got this wrong, Paul? And there are times in your life, aren't there, when you think you've been in the will of God, you're walking in the will of God, you think you're doing the right thing, you've made all the right decisions, you've prayed about everything you've done, and one thing after another goes wrong. Paul has this experience so that you can say to yourself, actually, I'm just going to trust God here. I don't have to have a cast iron, written in the sky, reassurance, This is my will for you and you're in the right place. I am going to trust God. I believe God, he says. Through all the contingencies of life, our sovereign God quietly, inexorably works everything together for the good of those who love him. You see, God doesn't change the way nature works in order to facilitate the spread of the gospel. This should rebuke us whenever we feel sorry for ourselves, or we're tempted to ask God why He doesn't make the way smoother for us and for His people. There are sometimes miracles, but they are by definition miracles, they are exceptions rather than the rule. The norm is that nature takes its course. Lightning and hail and snow and heart defects, cancerous cells all have their course. There is no guarantee that even the choicest of God's servants will avoid anguish or famine or peril or sickness or death. It is nowhere written that a Christian worker will not die in an air crash, be caught in a snowstorm, or be smitten with cancer. Nature takes its course. Nature is stronger than we are. We are still doing battle against its powers. And we humans are puny. In comparison to nature that isn't our destiny but that's our situation at this moment at this junction we who were made to tame nature we who were made to fulfill nature are victims of nature because of Adam's fall and because of our sin the only guarantee we have as believers is that none of nature's powers Neither life nor death, nor things above, nor things below, nor things in hell, or anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the only assurance we have. Paul had written that just a couple of days ago. We need to remind ourselves of that today. Dr. Barnhouse used to preach here, and his wife had a kind of perfect squelch for each other whenever one or other of them displayed a lack of faith. If somebody, you know, one of them in their marriage said something that was kind of unbelieving and, you know, married couples do that kind of thing from time to time and they get, you know, the frustrations of life set in and, and you, you know, you get you, one of them, one of them, the most spiritual one, of course, is the first one to capitulate. And they, you know, say, oh, why is this happening? Why is that happening? The other one would say, oh, well, we think that all things work together for good and the expected answer from the other person this was to to jolt their memory and of course the other then would be brought up short and say oh no for we know that all things work together for good. Let's get the quotation light. Not we think, we know that all things work together for good let me just summarize this then like this God can use our demeanor in the storms of life to impact other people for good. You know know that phrase, have you heard this phrase? It's probably not used so much today as it was when I was two. Uh, That people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. You ever heard that expression? The problem with people who are earthly minded, of course, is that they're no use at all. But... (laughs) The reality is that people who are heavenly minded are of most earthly use if they put their minds to the task. You read the story here for example. Here is Paul. He gives a little speech to these men who are terrified out of their minds. They're exhausted. They haven't eaten for 14 days. The storm is still raging. At some point they're going to have to abandon ship and they're going to have to long swim towards shore. Paul warns them of that. You notice what he says there? We must run aground on some island. You'd think he'd tell them something spiritual, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you tell them, well, let's have a prayer meeting, or whatever. Or, or do something really spiritual, like take up an offering. Um, the, you, just to kind of put everything in its context. No, he says, we're going to have to ditch, we're going to have to get this boat onto some rocks, and then we're going to have to find land. We're going to have to head for land. So he emerges, you see, as the leader, is telling them what to do, but that's not all he does, actually. There's a very interesting thing that he does. He starts to eat food, and he presses them to eat food. He says, look, this is how much I believe God. I'm going to eat. Before I do anything else here, before we start strapping down some of these things that are flying around us here, we need to eat. In other words, it was his confidence in God that enabled Paul to take control of the psychological situation and help these people take practical steps necessary in the circumstance. They would need the calories and the energy of the food in order to get the ship to the place where it could be saved. They would need that energy to swim ashore. They would need that food. Paul, in that very practical way, he's, he's doing what needed to be done. He's using common sense. He's using the wisdom of God. He's t- he is taking the lead in that situation. He, he reminds me in this situation of that Christian man. Uh, aboard that flight, you remember, that was hijacked on 9-11 that came down somewhere in Pennsylvania when he said, do you remember his words? Let's roll. He did what he had to do. He took the lead where it was necessary to be taken he believed God and he believed that something had to be done to prevent loss of life somewhere else where it was targeted further along and when the storms of life come it's the person who is conscious of God's presence and clear about God's ownership and confident in God's will and convinced of God's sovereignty who will help those who are in despair in this story it's the apostle Who warns against selfish panic, for every hand would be needed to get them ashore. Who concentrates on what needs to be done practically. Who encourages them to eat, knowing they need every calorie of energy. And who gets them to shore. He does his companions good. You see, as Christian people, we think of doing good at a number of levels, don't we? We I suppose the highest level we think we can do good to people, and we're right, is of course if somebody is, who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus, becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus. We think that is their ultimate good, because that kind of sets them up for where they'll be 10 billion years from tonight. But we can do them good here as well, you know, we can do what Paul does for these men. He encourages them at this level. He does what is necessary for them at this level. He demonstrates genuine humanity. Well, I just want to finish with the words of a little poem that I came across a number of years ago that I can summarize Paul's behavior in the storm and I think can be applied to each of our lives. Forgive the generic use of the word man in the poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers them and hurts them and with mighty blows converts them into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks while his good he undertakes how he uses whom he chooses And with every purpose fuses him and every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the trials and tests of our lives, you know, you know what you're about. And we can cast ourselves anew. Sometimes it's not so clear to us. We have to come back to the story of Paul with this mighty revelation that he receives. Be encouraged by that. Go back even further to that mighty resurrection of the Lord Jesus and know that at the end of the story here, these facts of his resurrection are the basis of our hope. And without that resurrection, we are without hope and without God in the world. We pray that tonight something of that would invade our personality, clarify our thinking, capture our heart. For your glory's sake. Amen.